All right, we're in James chapter 4 today as a launch point, which is where we began last week, uh, on a journey. Uh, We're taking a journey on the highway to humility. Um, Our subject is humility. Real Christians have a conviction. They have a lifestyle that models this priority. Um, This may be one of the most critical ingredients to following Christ and being used by Christ. It is pride that forfeited the privileges of heaven for Lucifer. It is pride, in part, that forfeited the blessings and benefits of Eden for Adam and Eve. You could have more. If you want more, partake of the fruit, and you can be like God, this desire to be elevated. Pride kills. Pride causes God to do this. He is opposed to the proud. But on the other hand, he gives grace to the humble. Grace is divine help and aid. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is blessing from above. God's either doing this because of pride, or he's doing this because of humility. Humility invites the blessing of God. And uh, we're going to read this text, and then I'm going, I just really want to plant my flag where we are in the book of James, and then we're going to travel to some other places to mine some treasure and perspective about humility, because I think this is one of those sins, this business of pride, that uh, handicaps us in ways we couldn't imagine. God has gone on the record, I hate a proud look, the proud I will not endure. Pride leads to destruction. On the other hand, humility, the alternative, the antonym to pride, invites the blessing and goodness of God. James chapter 4, Real Christianity. We are going to read the paragraph, and I'm coming back to this paragraph, Lord willing, in the future to unpack all its treasure. But humility is mentioned in this text, and I just want to start where we started last time. So James asks, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? What is the source? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. By the way, that requires humility. Verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, unfaithful to God, do you not know that friendship with the world is, is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks for purpose? He God jealously desires the Spirit capital S, which is made to dwell in us, but he gives greater, he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit therefore out of humility to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you, draw near to God out of humility and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you dumble-minded, out of humility. 
Be miserable and mourn and weep because of humility. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. I began last time with the declaration that humility is a choice you make, not a gift you receive. This is an imperantival verb. It is a command. Humility is something you receive like a gift from God. Humility is a choice you make. God will either humble you or you will humble yourself. Humility is necessary to enjoy the grace gifts of heaven. And according to this short statement, this paragraph, as it relates to behaving as a real Christian, living a lifestyle that models Christianity, I would this paragraph this way, real Christians are trusting, faithful friends of God not manipulative, fickle friends of the world. In other words, they're not trying to secure their own satisfactions. They are entrusting those satisfactions to the Lord. They are not hurtful, but helpful. Real Christians are trusting faithful friends of God, not manipulative, fickle friends of the world who betray trust, trust with God. That's why they're called adulteresses. There is a covenant commitment between the people of God and the maker and redeemer of the people of God. And that trust is violated when one seeks the world as opposed to relies on God. So those who betray trust and refuse to see it, betrayal, and own it for what it is, which is why this paragraph ends with, you should be mourning, you should be weeping out of humility. Instead, you are self-justifying, therefore humble yourself. Humility. Turn over to Mark chapter 7. And we're going to jump back into our understanding of humility. And we began with what I'm going to call today, at least, compelling biblical reasons and critical practical convictions to help you humble yourself. Humble yourself is not an option. The Bible's replete over and over again humble yourself, humble yourself, humble yourself. We just saw one of those. 1 Peter chapter 5, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due time. But there are compelling biblical reasons why you ought to do that. Unless you're inclined to, de to delay humbling yourself, you need to recognize this critical biblical reason for humbling yourself. God hates the absence of humility. It's distasteful. It's consequential. It's repulsive. It's abominable. And we rehearsed all of the biblical declarations of how the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, but pride, arrogance, and an evil way in the perverted mouth. God says, I hate. No small thing. But I want to invite you to Mark chapter 7 because I want to punctuate another consequence of pride. And the second principle, let me just state this plainly. Not only does God hate the absence of humility, there's no humility. Pride invites consequences from heaven. God's stated purpose and pattern as it relates to pride is to remove it, to deal with the source of it. So there are consequences, and that means that you need to recognize that God will deal with your pride 
as he did with Nebuchadnezzar, as he did with the women of Judah, removing their beauty, remember, removing his position, state, and status. But what about the future of desire to be in fellowship with God? Not just to be blessed and benefited by God, but what about the future of those who desire to be in fellowship with God and used by God? Let me ask the question this way. What kind of future does a Christian or a Christian community have that lacks humility? For the answer to that, I invite you to the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 7, where he talks about the things that handicap and defile, make you unfit for fellowship and service. And contextually, some of the Jewish leaders had come because the guys that followed him, the disciples, had not washed their hands appropriately before eating. They had not followed the tradition of the elders. Therefore, they had defiled themselves. And Jesus addressing what it is that actually defiles you. And he is not saying that Old Testament law doesn't matter. But what he is saying is what is reflected in the application of the law from the heart, that's what matters. It's not just religious behaviors prescribed by Moses or Old Testament commandment. It's the attitude of the heart that fuels and motivates those commandments in terms of obedience. So verse 14, for Mark chapter 7, but I want to point some things to you. Because this is what I'm trying to do is motivate you, biblically motivate you, with the recognition that if there is pride in my life, I must address it. I must humble myself. And that's not something the person next to you will do for you. It is something you do for yourself. And summoning the multitude again. So Jesus goes from a smaller conversation with Pharisees and some of the scribes, the legal experts, verse 1, chapter 7. Now he invites everybody back to consider the bottom line of what really handicaps fellowship with God and service for God. Verse 14, and summoning the multitude again, he began saying to them, listen to me. Now I just want to emphasize that. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. Jesus does not always say that. He often just speaks, but when he adds as a preface to what he's about to say, hey, listen to me, he is introducing foundational, axiomatic truth perspectives that are meant to govern and guide your life by way of compelling conviction. Summoning the multitude, he began saying to them, listen to me, now watch this, all of you, no exceptions, all of you, and understand. So don't just hear these words, reflect, meditate, and own these words. Here's the key statement, verse 15, there is nothing outside of the man which going into him can, here's the key word, defile, can defile him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. All right, let's talk defile for a minute. It comes from the Old Testament priesthood. Defilement, kanao, means to make filthy or to corrupt. It causes someone to be polluted. And biblically, it's ceremonially. 
In other words, priests in the Old Testament had to be clean or they were rendered guilty before God, Leviticus 5.2. The consequence of being ceremonially unclean was that you could not fellowship with God until a sacrifice was offered, Leviticus 5.10. And the sin, which resulted in defilement, had to be forgiven. Now listen, unclean priests could not perform their ministry without being cut off from before the Lord if they were defiled. They were unclean. They were polluted. Now remember, according to the Word of God, we are a royal priesthood, 1 Peter chapter 2. We are a royal priesthood. We are meant to be a holy, undefiled people. If you were defiled, according to the Old Testament, you could not perform ministry. You were cut off from before the Lord. You had to be cleansed of your uncleanness. Now, that's the background of the word defile. Bracketed, verse 16, because in some of the manuscripts, these words are not here. But if they were, it would further put the priority of this. If any man has ears to hear, you ought to listen. This is a critical precept. And leaving the multitude, he, Jesus, entered the house, and his disciples questioned him about the parable. So despite the clarity of his statement, there was confusion about its application. Verse 18, and he said to them, are you too so uncomprehending? Do you not see that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into, keyword, his heart? but into his stomach, and it's eliminated. Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Verse 20, and he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed, watch this list, the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. Verse 23, all these evil things proceed from within, and they defile the man. Now, two things that ought to capture you as these words, which you are meant to hear and meant to understand, that my problem, what disqualifies me from fellowship and service, comes from my heart. It's not my religious behavior, although religious behavior often reflects the heart, but it's not conforming to outward things. It's not failing to conform to outward things that defiles. Jesus says stuff that comes from the inside out. And in the grocery list of things that pollute, make you filthy and unacceptable for fellowship and service is pride. Pride disqualifies you from intimate fellowship with God and service on behalf of God, which is why we must humble ourselves. Turn over to Second uh, Chronicles 26. I'm going to give you a graphic biblical example of pride and its disqualifying reality. And while you're turning there, I remind you, and I alluded to it already, that the 
anointed cherub, Lucifer, the light bearer, Satan, Ezekiel 28, 14, was an anointed cherub, covers, and God says, I placed you on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire in the very presence of God. Ezekiel 28, 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, lifted up being pride, reason because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. So Satan's lifted up, Lucifer's lifted up, he's in the presence of God, he's enjoying ministry unto God as an anointed cherub, the highest station of angelic status, disqualified from serving God or being in the presence of God, he was cast down, removed from the privilege and the presence of the Lord. Uzziah... 2 Chronicles 26 is another example, biblical example, of the idea of what it means to be disqualified as a consequence of being elevated or lifted up in pride. Uzziah, whose name means Yah is my strength. God is my strength. He became king at the age of 16. He reigned for 52 years. It is understood that his was one of the most prosperous reigns of Israel after Solomon's reign. So that's who we're reading about, 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And all the people of Judah, verse 1, took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father, Uzziah. Verse 3, Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. He reigned 52 years. Verse 4, and he did reign in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. And he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who was the priest, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he he sought the Lord, God prospered him. So he's a godly king, he's a righteous king, and he's a blessed king. How blessed? Verse 7, God helped him against the Philistines. Verse 8, the Ammonites, the enemies of God's people, gave tribute to Uzziah. His fame, verse 8, extended to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Verse 9, Uzziah built towers. Verse 10, he hewed many cisterns, that's water pots, for he had much livestock. He also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and the fertile fields. He loved the soil. Verse 11, moreover, Uzziah had an army ready for battle. Verse 13, and under their direction was an elite army of 307,500 men, and they're underneath the valiant warrior leaders, 2,600 of them. That's verse 12. This elite army of 307 plus thousand who could wage war, watch this, with great power. Verse 14, Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and sling stones. And in Jerusalem, he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. This guy was into the soil. He was into the art of warfare. He was blessed. He had an elite army. His fame, verse 15, at the end, spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. 
All right, so here's the setup. Greatly blessed by God, which is what we're going to see as we continue our study. There are hard times to be humble, and one of those hard times to be humble is when you're strong and blessed, when you're spiritual and you are prospered because of your spirituality. You're God-connected, you're God-honoring, and you are God-blessed. That's Uzziah. God is my strength. He's playing at a level that made him famous by virtue of his strength and his capacity in every category of life. Verse 16, but when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Whose job was that? That was the priest's job. Boundaries prescribed by God, by Devafia. Priests are to do that. Not a king, a priest. Verse 17, so then Azariah the priest, the one whose job it was, entered after him, so he's gone into a place he should not go to do something he should not do with a heart lifted up in pride. And Azariah came and with him, get this, 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. This is called an intervention. This is called a confrontation. This is a blessed by God, follower of God, enjoying the blessings of God, who is transgressing the boundaries prescribed by God, which is what proud people do. So he's confronted. Verse 18, they opposed Uzziah on behalf of God. This is one of the ways God opposes the proud with the people of God energized for the principles of God, and they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. So there's the warning. Verse 19, here's something else proud people do. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was what? Enraged. And while he was enraged, the priest, the cutters, the leprosy. Notice the definite article, the leprosy. It's a specific leprosy. The leprosy broke out on his forehead. The because it was specifically sent by God to address a man who in pride is violating the prescriptions of God. The leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead, and they hurried him out of there. And he himself also has hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. Now watch verse 21. Here's a motivator for all would-be proud pursuers of their own agenda. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Now, this is an example, a graphic biblical example of the consequences of 
responding in pride as a result of the blessing of God, and therefore in pride you violate the boundaries of God. The consequences are catastrophic. He is a living, vivid example of being disqualified, listen to me, defiled. Leprosy defiled him for life. It was a consequence of pride, and it was a symbol of the reality of pride that he forfeited what? His communion with God in the house of God for the rest of his life. Pride will cost you fellowship and ministry. Pride prompts you to forget who you are, to assume a role that is not yours. You take a role that someone else has been given, maybe even God. Turn back to James chapter 4, and because you may say, well, I would never do something like that. I would never be so arrogant and disrespectful and frustrated by those who would confront me about my stepping over boundaries. James chapter 4, we're going back to the verse that follows where we ended our reading in James. Here's one of the imperatives of James. Do not speak against one another, 4.11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. Now, when you speak against, it literally kata means to speak down. Do not speak down about one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. The law referring to the law of love, love your neighbors yourself. You judge that as as unneedful in terms of practice and priority. So you ignore that. You treat others in ways you wouldn't want to be treated. But watch verse 12. Judge it as unnecessary, in other words. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. Who would that be? That's God. God says, when you speak against a neighbor, when you speak against a brother, when you talk down someone in the family of God, you enter into a zone that I reserve for myself. You are not qualified There is one lawgiver and there is one judge. It is not you. It's not me. I'm the one who has the ability to accurately assess. I'm the one who alone possesses the necessary capacity to do justice related to the issues that are to me and the people that know me. Who are you, verse 12, who judge your neighbor? Violating prescribed boundaries is an act of pride. When I speak down against a brother or sister, I am violating clear boundaries prescribed by God. I'm playing out of my zone, just like Uzziah played out of his zone. He's in a zone that didn't belong to him. Pride motivates us 
to violate the prescriptions of God and therefore we forfeit the blessing of God and fellowship with God because pride defiles. Pride disqualifies. See, pride not only leads to destruction physically and materially, pride leads to defilement and disqualification spiritually and relationally. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and hear kind of a, a warning, a prescription of God and a warning from God related to disqualification and pride. The loss of privilege and opportunity in ministry because of pride, which will lead us to the third emphasis that I want to make on our journey, the highway to humility. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 3 basically is the ingredient list or the qualification list for those who would aspire to be elders. How do you assess those who God has set apart as overseers in his church? Well, they have to have these kind of qualities, characteristics. They're to be men and above reproach, and the list is here for your benefit. But look at what you're told not to do, verse 6. They are not to be this one who qualifies as a representative and shepherd of God for the people of God, verse 6. They are not to be a new convert, literally a neophyte, young in their maturity before God. It's not necessarily an age thing, although physical age or biological age may be relevant because sometimes young of age goes with immaturity or young in Christ. But this is anyone who is newly converted to Christ. Now watch verse 6. Lest he become conceited. The reason you don't elevate a novice or a new convert is he's prone to being conceited. That is prone to pride. And the consequence is he falls into the condemnation incurred by the devil. What would that be? Certainly not the lake of fire. He's a new convert. He's a new believer. This is a condemnation to hell. This is the loss of leadership and ministry opportunity. He disqualifies himself from influence, just like the enemy disqualified himself from influence because of his heart being lifted up in pride. And young leaders... Young would-be converts of Christ who would aspire to lead God's people, prematurely promoted, are prone to pride. That's another hard time to be humble. You're ahead of yourself. Somebody's giving you responsibility. You're excited about the bit being the Bible study teacher or the, the person in charge and or the person promoted and elevated and prompted to be considered as a shepherd among the people of God. And you're prematurely promoted, and that premature promotion invites conceit. Just like the conceit of the enemy whose heart was lifted up in pride, and he forfeited walking with God and being used by God. Listen to me. Pride always disqualifies you from fellowship with God and usefulness for God. Not just for a neophyte elder candidate, but for every Christian. Uzziah is an example. Lucifer was an example of what God does in his resolve to deal with pride. That's what defiles us. And that comes from inside of us. 
The word conceit in this particular verse is one of the many words for pride. It is the word tufao. The Greek word used here, tufao, has a root idea to wrap or envelop in smoke. It is used figuratively only in the New Testament. It means to live in a cloud, means to be deluded. Heinrich Meyer says the verb, which only occurs here in chapter 6, verse 4, and 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, only in the pastoral epistles, comes from tufas, which in the figurative sense especially denotes darkness. A man whose mind is beclouded so that he does not know himself, so that the consciousness of his own weakness is hidden from him. Let me tell you what pride does. It blinds you. One of the definitions for pride is, I'm living in a cloud. I can't see. It's like I'm in a room or a world of smoke. Smoke as a consequence of my own misconceptions. Not about you, but about me. Me having an over high opinion of myself. Me living in a cloud of my own perceptions about who I am and what I'm capable of. And that cloud causes me to be deceived because I cannot see. Cornerstone, here's a reality about pride. Pride blinds. You ever hear that? Blinded by pride? Pride always blinds. The last person to potentially know that I am proud is me. Which leads me to the third critical, biblical, compelling conviction. In order to humble yourself, you need a team of Partners who will help you see what otherwise you wouldn't see. Perceiving pride requires assistance. You need help. Blinding pride requires not just 80 valiant priests. It requires brotherly friends and sisters who you invite to help you see what otherwise you cannot see. I'll give you some of the definitions of pride so you know what you're looking for. The Hebrew word for pride primarily is a root which means to rise or to elevate, gaha. It means to elevate yourself in status, glory, or position. One of the prominent Greek words for pride is the one we saw in Mark chapter 7, verse 22, is the word phania, which means to shine a light on, shining, a prefix hooper, which means bright shining, shine on, be like I'm holding a big spotlight or flashlight over my head so you can see my face. Hooperphania, the word for pride in Mark chapter 7 is I'm always shining attention on myself. If I had a spotlight, I would certainly not shine it on you. I would shine it on me. Because that's what pride does. It elevates itself. It's like the super selfie. I don't just take pictures of me. I make sure you take pictures of me. 
unwarranted, exaggerated, excessive belief in one's own or by association, someone else's worth, merit, abilities, or achievements. See, I not only can be shining the light on me because of what I perceive about me, and I want to make sure you see in me, but because I associate somebody special to me that you might respect and regard, my name dropping will advance the brightness of the light in me, on me, and your perception of me. This is a quality which magnifies achievements. You see, if I'm proud, I'm not going to let you miss anything good that you need to know about me. I wear my resume, and if you can't read it, I'll make sure you see it. And I'll highlight everything on it that potentially elevates me. And if someone near me has potential to support your view of me, I'll add them in my resume. I'll drop a name. This includes this word, hooperphania, not just exaggerated things, but an attitude. An attitude of what we would call arrogance. An attitude of superiority. Haughtiness. It's an overbearing manner. It's presumption in claims and assumptions. It refers to excessive belief and consequentially results in often an insulting way of thinking or behaving that comes from believing that I am better, I am smarter, and I am more important. It elevates itself. Not only do I shine the light on me, I grant me all the privileges are signed by somebody so special as me. I deserve it, and by association or by connection, you don't. So I'll promote me, I'll elevate me, I'll be superior in attitude, and I'll be benefited because of my superiority. There's another word that's common in the Greek New Testament. Lazania, alazon, denotes the man who tries to impress by making big claims, assuming too much, stepping beyond proper bounds to be ostentatious and showy. The, the way this word works is, is I, I have a swagger about myself. I have, this is the head held high. This is the look at me. And if the way I carry myself does not promote your interest in me, I'll verbalize reasons you ought to be. I'll find a way to elevate your view of me. That's this word. Pride is a self-promoter. And listen, it can be subtle, especially when you traffic in the circles that we play in. Is it popular to be proud in Christian community? Answer, no, it's not popular. Anybody like a proud person? Nobody likes a proud person. So we learn how to mute our pride in ways that are not so obvious. Christians need to recognize that it's not just the outward form, it's what's flowing in my heart that invites attention and elevation for me. 
I, uh, I attended many years ago now a, an advanced counseling conference in Colorado Springs at Glen Airy. If you've ever been there, it's near the gods, a stun location for a retreat and for a conference. And I went and one of the evening meals, as is typical at conferences like that, much like Shepherd's Conference, you get to sit with people you don't know, you get to meet people that you otherwise haven't had opportunity to know, and sitting at a table like that, and we're going around the table introducing ourselves, and the guy across from me introduced himself, and then the, and the part of the deal was you're to describe what, what you do, where you work, and he said, I work at the Air Force Academy, which is in Colorado Springs. So he identified himself and introduced himself as working at the Air Force Academy. So if, if folks introduced themselves and then it got to me and I introduced myself and talked about where I was from. And then I said to Mr. Air Force Academy, hey, I'm a pilot. Because I want him to know I'm a pilot and I'm presumption is he's at the Air Force Academy. He might be a pilot. And he said, oh, okay. I said, I fly a J-3 Cub and if J-3 Cub is... Uh, in a headwind about 55 miles an hour. It's slow. It's like riding a bicycle in the air. <laughs> okay. it's, it's flying at its most basic level. And I said, do you fly? He said, yes, I do. I said, because uh, I can't stop, right? <laughs> so we're pilots. Yeah, so uh, what do you fly? I, I fly F-16s. I said, you do? I said, what do you do at the Air Force Academy? I instruct, instruct fighter pilots. Long story short, he was the top gun instructor at the Air Force Academy. So here's Harry Walls across the table needing to tell this guy that I'm a pilot, I fly a bicycle in the air, <laughs> and you fly F-16s, and you train guys to fly F-16s. And... You've had these moments, right, where the Spirit of God reveals how shallow your heart is. Because it was so convicting. It was like that guy had no compelling to say, um, I'm at the top level of pilots. Not only that, I instruct the top level of pilots. And here's Harry across the table, compelled to tell him, I'm a pilot. You talk about conviction, it was convicting. Now listen, didn't have the obvious awareness that I was a self-promoter. But when the non-promoter didn't promote and I became aware of it, guess what I was? Convicted. Because pride is like that. It's blinding. And if I had an ally with me, somebody from my church, it might have been helpful to have them give me the elbow to say, that's enough. Somebody said, how do you know a pilot? You don't have to. They'll tell you. It's just a character. It's like guys who go to Harvard. You know, you don't have to ask them, though, you. Because there's something about that that is this, this kind of self-promoting, self-interest priority over high opinion of yourself, and I want to shine the light on me so you're sure to see me, just in case you missed me. You know what God says about that? I hate that. You know what else he says about that? I'm going to take the source of that away. You know what else he says about that? Disqualified. No fellowship, no communion, no access. And I'm not talking about relationship. You understand that, right? 
We're talking about disconnected from intimate communion with the presence, the felt presence of God, and usefulness for the glory of God. What disqualified me? Well, this thing in my this sense of self that I need to promote. Let me give you some uh, things to use as a grocery list to help your friends. And here's my encouragement to you. You need to invite people to help you see what you can't see. Part of the benefit of mutual accountability is having allies in your life that you can ask, hey, do you see anything? The way I walk, the way I talk, the way I function. Because here's the thing, I don't have to be proud every day to fall into pride. But when I'm in it, I need help with it. So you need allies to help you. It is a team effort because it is blinding by definition. So the fourth perspective, critical, practical perspective I want to give you is what you're looking for, the evidences of pride. Biblically, it involves a proud look. We saw that in Proverbs 6. You saw that in Isaiah 3 with the women of Judah, head held high, nose in the air, haughty eyes, often can be complicated with look at me clothes. It's funny, I think there's a reverse side to pride, and there is always a reverse side to pride. Let me just mention this. Sometimes pride is not the product of me thinking too highly of myself, but it's me not being confident in myself. I have to make sure that you help me feel better about me. I call it reverse pride. Insecure people demand attention to compliment what they're not sure about themselves. Reverse pride is competing pride. I don't feel superior. I feel inferior. I don't feel respected. I feel disrespected. So I demand respect and, uh, and honor by elevating myself and pointing to myself. It's reverse pride. See, I can think, hey, I'm a pilot. I'm somebody. Or, hey, I'm an athlete. I'm somebody. Or, hey, I'm a student of the Bible. Somebody. Or, hey, I'm, I'm whatever. I'm a businessman. Somebody. I can actually believe too highly about myself in exaggerated ways. But I can also behave in pride. I don't feel superior. I feel inferior. And part of the way I compensate for my inferiority is I make sure you elevate me to help me with me. Jonathan Edwards wrote an essay called Undetected Pride, Symptoms of a Pride Infection. And John Piper says, pride is an infection of your eyes. And the hardest kind of pride to see is undetected pride. I'm going to read the list, and then I see we're out of time today, so we'll come back to it, Lord willing. Let me give you the list of Jonathan Edwards' undetected pride that complements the, the look of pride, head held high, nose in the air, haughty eyes, look at me close or outward things. Number one, he says, fault finding. It's the pride that blinds us to our own weakness and blinds us to someone else's goodness. All we see is what somebody else isn't. Harsh spirit, number two. This is the pride of contempt, irritation, frustration. This is the pride that belittles others. This is the pride that injures others by disrespectful words or attitudes and actions. 
listen, it's pride that expresses itself in an unbecoming way when somebody cuts you off. You had no right to do that. Housed in that is I have a right. Harsh spirit. Three, superficiality. Symptoms of a pride infection often undetected is superficiality. And this is something we can certainly be challenged with here. A concern for the way other people think. Concern for others' perceptions. Concern about what they see versus what they can't see. Number four, defendants. You saw that in Uzziah. Instead of listening and receiving truth from others when we're challenged, we reject it. We're defensive. My first response is not to listen because I'm proud. Presumption before God, Jonathan Edwards, number five. No trembling, no fear of God. I can just walk in. I don't, it doesn't, I just, the attitude is callous and careless. It's one of the concerns I have for the way Christians sometimes approach church. Obviously, the way I dress doesn't define my heart, but sometimes the lack of regard for how I dress when I'm coming to worship God can reflect a presumptuousness and careless with regard to God. Number six, desperate for attention. You'll understand that one. Hungry for attention or respect, and this is the shameless plugs. This is the things you do where you you can't help but say things so people are clear about how valuable you are. I also think this desperate for attention plays into an inability to say no when someone needs you. Because being needed by someone can affirm my value. So saying yes to that can be a undetected motivation of pride. And then number seven, and I'll quit with this, neglecting others. Neglecting others, the lessers, and the preferring of some because of the perception that they matter. They have place. They have power. I'll neglect the lesser in order to promote connection with the perceived greater. Pride brings judgment. Pride is hard to see. Pride says, I need allies to help me see what I can't see. Humble yourself so that God can give what's in his heart to give. Can you say amen to that? Father, thank you. Thank you for the clarity of your word and the sober content of it. Lord, we are not immune to pride. We are prone to it. There are times that are hard to be humble, and one of those times is when you're blessing abundantly. And we can assign to ourselves, whether it's our achievements or our spiritual accomplishments, credit for the privilege and the prosperity we enjoy. And then we violate boundaries. We do things that we shouldn't do and We sometimes do that even to you. So Lord, help us to humble ourselves so that we might be blessed and be a blessing so that we can not only walk with you, we can be used by you. Lord, it's to that end I pray in Jesus' name, amen.